Welcome to episode 25 of my podcast, My Life and Welcome to It. My name is Chris Jensen, and I started this podcast on February 1st. But for the last 13 episodes, I've been exploring a different theme. It's not about me. It's about us. But today, and today is, well, let me look. It's the 11th of May. It's a Monday. I wanted to take a break from talking with my friends and just sort of catch up a little bit, uh, talk about what might be coming up that's new for the podcast. And I want to talk a little bit about what it was like growing up as a sickly child and how it might relate to today. But let me start with the gratitude that I have for the people who listen to these podcasts. I took a look and... uh, My overview has had 30 listens just by itself. And we've had over 500 listens uh, all together, which is pretty cool, I think. And it looks like we've got about 21 regular listeners. So that's pretty cool. It was uh, 12 for the longest time. So 21, that's something. In my mind, anyway. So I'm very grateful that people are listening. And I'm especially grateful for all the people that I have talked to over these last... Shoot, what is it? Month or so? Let's see, my first conversation was on the 25th of March. So, yeah. Just a little over a month. So let me just say thanks, and I'll list these names in order. Thanks to Ryan Weagle, Tessa Orovetz, Jim Jordan, Fred Heacock, Victor Amador, Dave Edwards, Charlie Blue, David Patterson, Ash Godel-Webb, Francis McGuire, Titi Kila. Forrest Reed, and my son, Jeremy Jensen. That was just, it was a wonderful experience for me to um, have an opportunity to talk to people that I've known for some time in an uninterrupted way. Uh, And to talk about things that are, you know, meaningful. And that was just great. And as I've worked on these podcasts, you know, I listen to them often as I edit them and try to get the sound just so. And every time I listen to one, it's like being in the room with them again. Or actually, I've never been in the room with any of them. But being on the phone with them or over the air with them or on the Internet with them, being with them, let's put it that way. And it's just been a delight and a blessing 
to relive our conversations over and over again. And so I'm really happy they're recorded and they're published and I can listen to any of them anytime I want. But it's time to take a little bit of a break. I'm going to call this round one. I'm going to take a little break. I don't know when I'm going to start it up again, but I will start it up again soon. And we'll do round two. I'll invite some of the people that I've already chatted with. I've got some new names. And uh, one of the things that I did early on, once I got this idea, I got so excited about it, I started doing an interview every day without realizing the amount of time it would take me in post-production to get it ready for publishing, which meant that I got way behind. And by the time we got to the last interview, that was on April 19th. It wasn't published until May 13th. That's almost a month. Uh, it's a long time. A lot's transpired. And um, what I would like to do is have my guest conversations uh, and publish them on a more... Um, in a tighter time frame. So I'm going to restructure that a little bit. But this whole exercise has meant a lot to me because it helps me to visit my past. It helps me to maybe clarify some things. Memory is a funny thing. You know, we often remember things the way we want to remember them rather than the way they were. And uh, oftentimes another person's memory of the same event or perspective on something that's a bit different sheds light um, so that I can think differently or more clearly on an issue or tweak my memory a bit. So it's been a blessing. Plus there's things that I've forgotten that people remind me of. And uh, and that's and that's cool too. So um, at, at some point, probably near the end or at the end of this podcast, I want to um, let you know what's coming up. There's a couple of things immediately, um, and there's a third project that I've begun work on, which probably we won't see. It won't see the light of day until the end of summer, I'm guessing. But I will share that with you at the, at the end of the, of, the prod, of the podcast. So right now what I'd like to do is uh, transition a little bit into what it was like for me growing up in regards to my health. I was sick a lot. I was in the hospital a lot. My mom told me that I had, I think, just about every kind of measles there is or was. You know, when I was growing up in the 50s, that was the, the age of the vaccine. And, you know, doctors were starting to invent vaccines. I got vaccine, I vaccinated for 
for smallpox and for polio. Um, because right, right, you know, right before I was born, polio was still a big deal. And I killed a lot of people and left a lot of children with disabilities. So there was that. But apparently some of these other vaccines didn't come along quite in time. So I got I got the disease. Just about every kind of measles you can imagine. I've had chicken pox. Yeah, that was fun. Um, one of the nice things about childhood diseases is that once you get through them, as you grow older, as I've grown older, I don't remember them very well at all. So that's a blessing. One of the things I, I do remember, though, is uh, when I came down with the mumps. That was horrible. I had a very, very high fever. And I remember, um, you know, as, as kids are wont to do, I was having a fever. I was miserable. So I got out of bed and climbed into bed with mom and dad. And then I, I, I must have gotten delirious at some point because I remember this very well, that I started counting. And I kept counting and counting, and the numbers kept getting bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger. And I couldn't stop. And I knew that Numbers are infinite, and I was afraid that I would get lost in that infinity. Somehow I came to, I came out of that. Um, whether I went to the hospital or not, I, I don't remember. But I do remember that right after the mumps, I came down with appendicitis. And I've often thought that those two were related somehow. Somehow, being sick with the mumps um, triggered the appendicitis. That landed me in the hospital for sure, and I had my appendix removed. But I spent a lot of time in the hospital. I have memories of being in the hospital. I'm not always aware of why I was there, but I was there a lot. Nowadays, there's no real visiting hours, I would say. But back then, there was definitely visiting hours. It was during the day um, until the evening, say maybe, I don't know, 7, 8 o'clock. Family was different. Every once in a while, uh, mom and or dad would spend the night. But for the most part, I was there alone. I remember one time, um, my sister and I, when we got out of school... We would go to one of uh, the ladies that lived in the town, her house, and uh, mom taught school, dad worked, and we were not old enough really to be home alone. And so we went to her house in the afternoons, do homework and, you know, that sort of thing. And I remember that one afternoon I was climbing a tree that was on their property. It was an almond tree, and there were almonds and nuts. So I picked a bunch of them, and my sister and I started eating them. And it wasn't long that we started feeling very sick to our stomachs. Well, what I didn't know, what we didn't know, was that the tray, uh, the tray, the tree had been sprayed 
with an insecticide, I think. And the, the shell um, had been split on many of the nuts, and so the, that poison, that insecticide, got into the meat of the nut. And, of course, we ingested that wonderful stuff. Well, my sister threw up pretty quickly, but for some reason I wanted to just deal with it. I didn't want to throw up, probably because throwing up's not fun. I've thrown up a bunch of times, and it's never fun. So what I did was I, I laid down. It was like a little porch swing. So I lay down on the porch swing and closed my eyes and thought maybe I could get it to go away. It didn't go away. But because I refused to throw up for so long, more of the insecticide was able to get into my bloodstream, and I got very sick. And that landed me in the hospital. And I remember during that time, um, Dad got some kind of food poisoning or something, and he ended up in the hospital for a day or two. We were in the same, the same hospital room. And what's really sad is that after I got better and I got discharged, I was kind of weak. I'd been in the hospital for a whole week, I think, and I was weak. So um, they put me into a wheelchair and wheeled me out to the car. And when I got to the car, uh, I stood up and immediately threw up all over the place. So they got me back into the wheelchair and back into the hospital I went. And lo and behold, I had contracted the flu. So I was in the hospital for another week. One of my earliest memories is going to the hospital. Um, I don't know why. It's one of those... Th I was sick a lot, I tell you. Um, we drove to the back of the hospital, and I, I don't remember it well, um, but there was a ramp that we went up into a in, a, in a big area. It was sort of, I remember it as being dark and we sat on a bench. I'm guessing that's the emergency area where ambulances would go. And I only remember two things about that. I remember Mickey Mouse for some reason. And I remember the hypodermic needle that they brought out to take blood. And, you know, when you're little, everything is big. And so my memory um, is of a needle that's like as big around as a drinking straw. It was enormous. And, you know, I don't know what went through my head. I was terrified, I'm sure. Um, but, you know, it's one of those situations. Well, as I got older, and I mean older, as an adult, I started going through some, some hard times. I started realizing that my life wasn't working for me. I've mentioned this before. And I ended up reading lots of books on psychology. 
And I stumbled on a book by a fellow named Charles Moustakis. And it's called Loneliness. It was first published in 1961. And I was dealing with loneliness. I was living by myself. I don't think I'd ever lived by myself up to that point. You know, I live with my I live with my mom, my dad, my sister, all through high school and t- and two years of junior college. Then I went away to college, and uh, Greg Lewis and I were roommates going to Chico State. Then um, after that. I lived at home again for a while as I transferred over to Sac State. And then um, Jim Jordan and I were apartment mates. Then I got married. And so with the advent of the divorce, um, I was looking at living alone and not really knowing how how to do it. Um, the marriage had come to a point where both my my ex and I agreed that it was time that um, we started living by ourselves. And I remember, now this may be news to my children, so but I'm going to share this anyway. I hope if my kids are, are sitting down when they listen to this. I remember that I got a call from my ex and she wanted to uh, talk to me about something over dinner. So we met at a restaurant and um, after dinner we were talking and she informed me that my son, Jeremy, had expressed to her that he didn't want to see me for a while. And on top of that, she said that it was probably best not for me not to um, see Ariel by myself. For me... That was one of the hardest things I've ever heard. And um, I said, okay, because my main thing was to support my kids. So I wasn't going to make a, a scene about it or make a battle over it. If that's what, if that's what Jeremy wanted and... You know, if that's what my ex thought was best, then so be it. That really put me in an alone space, really feeling alone. Um, It was right around that time period also that I had a break from my mom. I remember um, she was calling me a lot, and I knew I had family issues I had to deal with. 
And I basically said to her, um, Mom, I, I'm not ready to talk to you right now. When I'm ready, I'll call you. So um, that set up a pattern of loneliness for me. So I stumbled on this book on loneliness. And it helped me in many, many ways. And one of the things that I found very interesting about this loneliness book was how it dealt with kids in hospitals. So I want to read to you a little bit here from the book. So I'm going to start in the middle of a paragraph because there really is no good place to start. The possibility of being abandoned or left alone is the most serious threat to the child's whole existence. Of the many kinds of temporary abandonment, no experience is more desolating to a child than having to be in a hospital alone. The cold marble floors, the impersonal rules and regulations, the extreme bleak whiteness of everywhere, the desensitized atmosphere, the neat, empty, categorical arrangement of food and beds, external to the individual child and his personal preferences, the constant checks and routines, the frequent medication and shots which he does not comprehend, the disrespect for the integrity of his wishes and interests, the absence of genuine human warmth, and the presence of surface voices, surface smiles, and superficial words and meetings all enter into the loneliness of hospital life. I can remember uh, hearing my parents' footfalls in the corridor. You know, when you are alone and you really want to see someone and you're always in anticipation of seeing them, after a few visits, you get to recognize the sound of their footfall. I remember um, having to entertain myself in the hospital. I get comic books. Um, I remember when they brought food. Um, I would take the straw and had like a, a plastic wrapper, and I would use it like a like a rocket ship in a way. So around you know around the hospital bed, there's a, a curtain on a track. And it's just little. It's this metal track. It's up high. And I would uh, take the straw, and I'd take off a little end, right? And I'd blow on it really hard and see if I could shoot that paper uh, wrapping up and over the the metal track. And being in bed, 
and not allowed to get out of bed, uh, there was always paper on the floor. I'm sure the the staff there knew what I was doing, but I was there for a long time, so I never got in trouble. But it was lonely. It was lonely, and I was there a bunch. I was a sickly child. Um, yeah, I don't know how to explain it exactly. I'm glad I grew out of it. I get sick still, but nothing like that. So let me read a little bit more. For years, medical people have known that hospitalization may do a child more harm than good. Not only in contributing to his sense of abandonment, but in the development of terrifying fears, anxiety, and the traumas which survive long after the physical defect has been rectified. Knowing the significance of emotional factors in the etiology of physical disease and then in the development of health, doctors and nurses have made efforts to reach the child sympathetically expressing concern for his pain, being more gentle, giving information, and to sometimes even allowing the child to set the pace. But most children see through this kind of behavior when it is mere role-playing or rank professionalism. This kind of surface behavior is easily distinguished by the child from the spontaneous feelings of the heart. Furthermore, even the genuine feelings of a nurse or physician can never reach deeply enough to substitute for the love embedded in the child's relationship with his mother or father. The nurse or doctor can never give him a feeling of safety and the strength to, to face the severe trial of a painful illness. Yeah, I can relate to that. Mom and Dad would sometimes spend the night there were long, long stretches of time when they weren't there. So the, the thing that, that I reflect on is how those kinds of experiences remained with me even into adulthood. Things that I didn't even quite understand. So, as I grew older, I realized that my experience of being alone in the hospital influenced some of my choices in life. One of the challenges I had as an adult was being in touch with my emotions. My favorite Star Trek character was Spock. He was so logical, so analytical. I still things, say things are interesting, like he would. 
I had some tough emotions growing up. And this is an interesting thing. Let me read a little bit, a little bit more here about loneliness in hospitals and children. Feelings of loneliness must often be hidden in childhood. They are too frightening and disturbing. Like any intense, severe, disturbing emotion, these feelings must be curbed, controlled, denied, or, if expressed, quickly resolved or eliminated through busy activities and goals. One aspect of this cover-up campaign is that we make our children feel that nice people have only nice emotions. Children become afraid early to let others know how they actually feel. The natural and inevitable loneliness resulting in childhood must be distorted and controlled in interactions with others. The child soon believes he can show his parents only an expurgated, carefully edited version of his inner life. He begins to suffer deep feelings of guilt and inadequacy as he learns to regard his loneliness as bad and as a kind of sickness. The natural loneliness of inner life becomes confounded and confused, and sometimes the child enters into the tragic loneliness anxiety of self-alienation. For this reason, it is important to give children an opportunity to express their experiences of loneliness. It is one way to break through the terrible sense of guilt and isolation. You know, as I read that, I, I remember how much time I spent by myself in my bedroom, entertaining myself, reading. Uh, I had been given a guitar as a gift and spent a lot of time playing music, lots and lots of time back in my room by myself. Loneliness had become, I don't know, a coping mechanism for me. You know, the decisions that we make as little tiny children, we often don't remember as adults. And yet they stick around to influence how we behave. Yeah, it's one of the sad things in life. And so at some point, I needed to dig in there. I needed to discover some of the software programming that I had adopted growing up that I was no longer aware of, software that needed to be rewritten. Um, it took a while. It took some work. And this book was, was helpful because not only does this highlight some of the problems that come along with loneliness in children, it reframes them. And I, I'm going to get to that. It wasn't until later, as I read through this book, that I started to rethink my experiences of loneliness and how, I, how it would be, what would be a healthy approach to my loneliness. So let me read some more. Strange as it may seem, the individual in being lonely, if let be, will realize himself in loneliness and create a bond or sense of fundamental relatedness with others. 
loneliness rather than separating the individual or causing a break or division of self expands the individual's wholeness, perceptiveness, sensitivity, and humanity. It enables the person to realize human ties and awarenesses hitherto unknown. In loneliness, one is definitely alone, cut off from human companionship. And then the author goes into how other people, how we, often relate to folks who are lonely or alone. And so he writes this. Being lonely calls for a taxing and straining of resources, which toughens the individual for facing the realities of life. Most individuals today would rather not be faced with an experience which is so all-encompassing of self, which calls for the full use of human potentialities, which calls for such deep, intense feeling. And most of us would rather not stand by while another plunges into such a totally desolate existence. Therefore, every effort is made to provide the lonely one with company, to get him involved in a social life, to keep him busy with obligations and tasks. It is too disturbing to let the solitary person be, to remain with him while he lives through a pitiful or tragic situation. So we escape our own discomfort and pain and contribute to the unrealized loneliness of the other person by surrounding him with company, by talking him out of his deep depression, by getting him into other experiences as quickly as possible, by assigning him tasks which will get his mind off his plight. The experience of seeing another person in lonely suffering is so piercingly effective that we use every means to terminate the situation, providing new conditions and requiring a prescribed set of acts or behavior. I appreciate you indulging my reading. I don't do this often, but sometimes what someone else has written says what I'm thinking far better than I could even say it myself. And I'm going to finish with this. We're not even halfway through the book. The book is, is tremendous. We may come back to it before the hour is up. But I'm going to end with this for now. There is no solution to loneliness but to accept it, face it, live with it, and let it be. All it requires is the right to emerge in genuine form. And I think that's the that's the kicker right there. Emerging in genuine form. Just being able to sit with that emotion of loneliness and not not label it, not call it something that it's not. It is just what it is. After many years of working 
on my issues. I can't say that I'm completely devoid of loneliness, but it's not debilitating like it was. I've learned that being alone and being lonely are not the same thing. You know, I've lived by myself now for 12 years. And I've actually grown accustomed to it. I enjoy it. And now that I'm retired, it's been that way for the last couple of years, I'm with myself a lot, by myself a lot. And with the advent of COVID-19 and the lockdown strategy, even the little bit of socializing that I did uh, isn't happening. So I'm really faced with myself. And so I'm grateful for the work that I've done on myself. I'm grateful for exploring aspects of my psychology, my past, my history, how it's influenced my life. Now I feel like I can honestly embrace the loneliness. The loneliness of not having family around or friends. You know, Zoom is fun and you get to see people, but it's not the same, is it? No, not really. And there's hope, right? There's hope for that day when circumstances change and we spend time with each other in person. Time's coming. But the big reason this came up for me just now is thinking about all the people who come down with COVID-19. They're extremely contagious. They go into the hospital. If they end up in ICU, if they end up testing positive, oftentimes family is not allowed to see them. And it's something that older people deal with pretty often. You know, their children are grown and they have their own lives and they're busy. And um, so we get used to the fact that we're not going to see our kids that much. And... Um, but I think it's hard when you're in the hospital and you've got something like COVID-19 and it's a scary disease and you don't have access to your family. It's got to be a very lonely place to be. And now there's, they're saying that there are some health implications for children that can be brought on by the by the virus. And so for a child to be hospitalized 
and isolated from family, it's even worse. And I think that as a culture, the people who survive and come through this time that have experienced the isolation and the loneliness, there'll be lasting effects. I have no idea what that's going to look like. But it's going to be difficult, and we are all going to need to support each other, whether we're lonely and isolated at home or lonely and isolated in the hospital. We're going to need to love each other, be patient with each other, try to understand that what someone's going through, they may not be able to even talk about. That's how I was. I couldn't talk about a lot of things for the longest time. My emotions were overwhelming to me, and so they had to be kept down. That's no way for a person to live. There's no way for me to live. And I really believe that that was one of the contributors to the collapse of our family unit. After about a year, um, I heard from my ex, and she said, Jeremy would like to see me. And it took about a year. And so I, you know, got to see my kids. Um, we never went through a period like that again. And after I'd, after about a year, I'd been through some personal growth experiences dealing with my relationship with my parents called my mom. We started back up our relationship, but it was different. It was different. It was healthier. It was more adult. But I had to go through it. I had to find myself at least enough that when I related to another person, it was me that was relating and not not a facsimile of me that was crafted and molded by my negative experiences. So I pray for our children. I pray for our elders. I pray for all of us who are at home wanting so badly to be out and connect. We're social people. We are social animals. You know, we aren't meant to be isolated. That's a punishment, right? Solitary confinement is a punishment. And that's how we look at it sometimes. We're being punished somehow. But there's another side. Also, there are people who choose to be alone. There are people who choose to live a monastic life or a religious life. You know, there are still people who, um, in Catholic Christianity, are cloistered, which means they never come out. Once they go behind the walls of the convent or the abbey, they don't come out. Except for maybe very rare occasions. And that's their choice. Um, Very interesting, I think, to choose something like that. It's a hard way to live. 
but some people do. But for those of us who don't choose that lifestyle and we have it imposed upon us, it can feel like a punishment. And people push back. I understand that. But it's a time for all of us to to dig deep, to embrace the loneliness, to embrace the aloneness. We have a great opportunity, if we so choose to take it, to learn about ourselves, to embrace who we are without distraction of life. And when we come out of this, we'll have more of ourselves to share with others. So I look forward to that. Just a little bit more from Mr. Moustakis, and then we'll be done with him. These are the last two paragraphs of the book. Loneliness is as much a reality of life as night and rain and thunder, and it can be lived creatively as any other experience. So I say, let there be loneliness, for where there is loneliness, there is also sensitivity, and where there is sensitivity, there is awareness and recognition and promise. Being lonely and being related are dimensions of an organic whole, both necessary to the growth of individuality and to the deepening value and enrichment of friendship. Let there be loneliness, for where there is loneliness, there is also love, and where there is suffering, there is also joy. Once upon a time, I was practicing kundalini yoga, and we were doing this one uh, I'll call it an exercise. And the way it worked was you held your hands out parallel to the floor, arms extended one to each side, like an airplane. And you held them there. And you focused on your breathing. And we would do a breath of fire, um, various techniques. And it gets to a point where it becomes very uncomfortable. You might even say that it begins to hurt. And if you continue doing it, then it opens up a space that is very, um, what to call it? There's nothing to call it. It just opens up an interesting space. Well, later, as I was reflecting on that experience... I came to the realization 
for me on a definition of pain. What was pain? And I decided that pain was a feeling that we didn't want. And that's why it was pain. But if we embraced it, that would transform the pain into something else. And I think that was the whole point of the book by Mr. Moustakis on loneliness. If we embrace loneliness, if we learn to use that feeling of loneliness to explore our our own history and allow it to cultivate other emotions, caring, sympathy, empathy, and love, that the loneliness can be a springboard for something very positive. Well, that's my story for this episode. I thank you for hanging in there this far. I'd like to once again express my gratitude for everyone that's listened up to this point, to all the various episodes. This was number 25. I thank David Patterson for his friendship and his willingness to uh, listen to my questions and provide answers and feedback and encouragement. I consider him my technical consultant. He has a, a podcast with uh, three other folks. It's called Wasting All the Time. And I'm very impressed by it. And so I value his, his input and his friendship. You can find Wasting All the Time wherever podcasts can be found. And they have a an, uh, an adjunct podcast. It's called um, The Plot Thickens. It's an ongoing story. Uh, each episode is a continuation of that story, but because it's improvisational, it goes down storylines that uh, happen on the spot. It's very interesting. I also... I uh, want to thank uh, my friend Dave Edwards, who did the artwork for the podcast. But he also is willing to experiment with me as I try out new things, new sounds. Um, and uh, I appreciate his friendship, very grateful, and his willingness to play around with me on the, on the podcast. And if you're curious, you can... Uh, follow his artwork um, on Instagram at EvilDaveTM. And I thank Anchor. Anchor is, uh, you know, when I was working, thinking about doing a podcast, free was the price I was looking for. And Anchor provides a free hosting of the podcast. And so I'm thankful for that and very grateful. So I told you at the beginning of this podcast that there were some changes coming, some new things coming. 
So let me just uh, lay it out there for you. First of all, um, I have created an email address. Uh, I will place the email address in the notes, and then on the next episode, um, I will actually incorporate it in the uh, in the ending credits, so that you can leave a comment. Um, maybe there's something that I said that you have a question about, so feel free to either leave a comment or ask a question. And if it's something that you would not mind hearing on a future podcast, please let me know, and I will read your comment and or question um, on the podcast. The other thing that I'm doing, or have done, um, is I've started a, a YouTube channel for the podcast, so I will be migrating the podcasts probably do it in batches of five or so, five at a time. Uh, YouTube channels get a different type of audience, and I have the ability to put tags on it. So if someone is searching for something, they might be able to find it. Um, so there's a learning curve there for me that will be happening as soon as I can get it going. So those are two new things. The third thing is a project that I'm going to be working on. Um, it's going to take a bit of time, and so it may not be ready for publishing until uh, late summer, early fall. But it's going to be called Chasing After God, and it's going to be about my spiritual journey starting all the way back to uh, my grandparents because um, there's a heritage there and it leads up through to what my parents were doing prior to my birth um, and then through, you know, all that I have been through into where I find myself today. So it's going to be a, a lengthy um series. Uh, hopefully it'll be interesting for some, not interesting for others, but that's, it's something that um, has been on my mind to do for a long time. And, uh, and I think it's time, time to get to it. So going forward, uh, we'll be listening to more guest chats interspersed with me doing a solo podcast. And um, this has been a, a wonderful experience. It's only been, can you believe it's only been two months? It seems like it's been forever to me. But I started on February 1st. So, again, let me say thank you for listening. And uh, stay safe. Be well. And God bless. At the beginning of the book, we find a selection from a poem. It's from a poem called Flamingo Feather by Lawrence Vanderpost, 1949. And it goes like this. Get ready to weep tears of sorrow as bright as the brightest beads 
And like the bright beads you string to wear round your throat at the burial, gather your tears and string them on a thread of your memory to wear around your heart or its shattered fragments. We'll never come whole again. <laughs> 